0: Okay, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you tonight again for the salvation that is given to us in pure grace, that not of works, lest any man should boast, and that it is completely by faith of trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus. And that we, when we approach you, that we approach you not in our righteousness, not in our merit, but in that bestowed righteousness that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, last w- time, we uh, uh, we have two housekeeping announcements. One is that next week we won't have class because I'm out of town. Um, and uh, tonight, we won't have question and answer again because I've got to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, so... Um, we'll just go through this uh, mid-tribulationism tonight, get into a little pre-trib stuff. Um, two weeks from now, we'll we'll have a handout and we'll go through the rest of that. And that probably will be the last of the doctrinal stuff. And then we'll, we'll work for a few more weeks in applying the eschatology in the Christian life. And um, that way we can finish up. <clears throat> okay, today, um, if you look at page 133, In the notes, we're dealing with uh, mid-Tribulationism. And uh, again, to review what we're doing here, (coughs) is um, all views of last days attempt to do two things. They attempt to pull together the end of history as shown in the Old Testament program through Israel, and it attempts to take the New Testament information and meld it together with that Old Testament information into a coherent picture. That's, that's, and that's difficult. And that's why there's disagreement. And the Church really has been only working on this problem for, uh, for about a century and a half. And compared to other theological debates, um, this one hasn't gone on very long. Um, the other theological debates have lasted centuries, literally. Um Anyhow, we have looked at futurist uh, the futurist positions and uh, we we talked about preteritism, and uh, well that one doesn't work um, so all the futurist positions see the content of the book of Revelation and Matthew 24 and the parallel passages to Matthew 24 as future preterism sees all that as past and we haven't got into historicism because today on the scene there aren't many historicists around um, so the futurists we had we've worked with we started with post tribulationism post means after the tribulation so we talked about that position, which is a a very popular position, and uh, we said it had a number of problems, and I won't go through all those because we've reviewed those and gone through those. Then we dealt with, finished up last time, with a three-quarter trib position, and that puts the rapture of the church three-quarters of the way through the tribulation. And we began with the mid-trib position. And so we're on the bottom of page 133, <clears throat> and uh, we're going to go through parts and pieces of the mid-tribulation position tonight. Drawing a picture of what it looks like, mid-tribulationism, again, looks at Daniel's 70th week. Correctly so, because they have interpreted Daniel 7 as something to happen in the future, and it's something that's going to happen uh, with, with Israel And they accept the traditional classification that there's two halves to that 70th week and that the great tribulation is the tribulation that this word great tribulation becomes a technical term actually for the last three and a half years. So that's the position uh, of of the mid-tribulation position. And mid means that they place the rapture right at that point before that great tribulation starts. You remember the three-quarter position up here had a strange view. They, they took the classic trib position, and then they injected this three-quarter point and said the rapture occurs there. So if you look at, and then the post-trib position took the day, and they put the rapture here. Now, Both the three-quarter-trib and the mid-trib positions That's not in focus um, Both those positions, if you look carefully at the charts Do what? As far as the rapture and the return They separate them The post-tribulationists do not This position keeps the rapture and the return As part and parcel of the same event These positions don't they distinguish those as two, two things. Granted, it's all part of the return in the sense of the larger sense of return. The parousia, or the return, can be used narrowly of this little thing here, or broadly of the whole complex of events. And that's something in Bible study you have to watch, because you can get a word And you've got to tell from the context how that word's used, whether it's being used in a very narrow sense or it's used in a broad sense. And one term that that you've got to be real careful about is the term Day of the Lord. Because Day of the Lord occurs in many different ways. It can refer to a Day of Judgment in the Old Testament times. It can refer to this whole period of time or it can refer to one climactic event inside that big day of the Lord. Some believe that he can even refer to the Millennial Kingdom. So these terms are challenging because it appears that they are used contextually in in different senses. So you can't just fix a meaning in your head and then boom, 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 mechanically say it always has that same meaning. (coughs) If you back off a minute, uh, let me give an, an analogy that has nothing to do with eschatology, well, it has something to do with eschatology, but uh, one that's very near and dear to our hearts, and that's the term eternal life. Now, if you do a careful concordance study, look up every time the eternal life is used in the Bible, in the New Testament, let's just say, and you'll see that the Apostle John uses it in a distinctively different way than Paul does. When Paul uses the term eternal life, he is talking about almost the reward thing that happens after the behemoth scene. If you look at John, he's talking about something that is a present possession. And you'll get endlessly confused if it gets back to the rule of context. What's the rule of context? It says, if you don't know what, ha- what a word has, look in the immediate context. If you can't find it there, gradually expand expand to all that particular author's writings, and then go to another author. And that's the rule of context in Bible study. So these terms get messy, and you have to listen to how people use them, just like in normal conversation. There's different nuances. So that's one thing that does cause some confusion here in these positions. Okay, on to mid-tribulationism. If you look at the bottom of 133 now, we know that mid-tribulationism has similarities to three-quarter tribulationism in that both do what? Both separate rapture and return. The difference between the three-quarter position and the mid-position is where they locate the rapture. That's basically it. The fourth scenario attempts to extend the church age into half of Daniel's 70th week, rather than three-quarters of it. Um, in agreement with a three-quarter view, mid-tribulation distinguishes between the rapture and the return. Unlike it, it adheres to the two-part view. Figure nine shows that view, and on page 134 there's the, there's the diagram of the mid-trib position. Now, follow what we have done so far. What was the problem that post-tribulationists had? The problem they had was that if the church is promised respite and protection from the wrath of God and the wrath of God is descends on the earth and all of human society in the tribulation how do you get those two statements together if the church is going to be physically on earth during the pouring out of the wrath of God what does it mean when it says the church is not set out for the wrath of God and so the post-tribulations have to work it one of two ways. They either have to say that the church in some sense is physically protected against the wrath of God during that tribulational period. Or that the tribula- the real wrath of God only occurs right here in the closing moments. That all this stuff that goes on in the 70th week isn't the wrath of God. Now that's kind of hard to buy anybody looks at Scripture. So... The best way for post tribulation to do it is that the church is somehow divinely protected. The problem with that position is that in the book of Revelation, believers are martyred. So how is the church protected from the wrath of God? And that's the dilemma when you do this sort of thing. It's also the dilemma that happens here with the three-quarter position, because they've got the same problem. How do you protect the church from the wrath of God? Well, the way that the three-quarter people do is they define the wrath of God to be this alone and come up with a very innovative definition of the wrath of God. The why, How they are able to do that is they define the wrath of God to be God's catastrophic judgments that involve nature. Whereas all the judgments prior to that involve Human agencies, armies, and the effect of wars, and that sort of thing. So that's their attempt to do justice to the passages that say the Church is not appointed to wrath, but yet put the Church in the period of wrath. Well, then they sweep the wrath down toward the end and make all the rest of the judgments not wrath, and we have discussed that. Now what do you suppose, before we touch anything, since we already see the logic developing here in these positions, just predict, looking just at the chart, what do you think that mid-tribulationism has to do here? They have to confine the wrath of God to what? The last half of the tribulation. And that's indeed what they do. They they define this as the period of the wrath of God. Now, they, they are in a stronger position in my Estimation than the three-quarter people are, because the three-quarter people are trying to split up the great tribulation and the wrath of God into two distinct and sequential time periods, whereas the mid-tribulation position doesn't mean attempt to do that. It just says this is a, this is the last three and a half years of tribulation. It's the wrath of God. And it's the great tribulation. They don't try to partition it off. So let's look then at what they do on page 134. Like all the futurist scenarios, mid-tribulation, must deal with a promise to keep the church from the wrath of God. Post-tribulationism, you will remember, try to do so by either protecting the church somehow from the wrath of God throughout the 70th week, or confining that wrath to the closing moments of the 70th week. Three-quarter Tribulationism tried to do so by confining the wrath of God to the latter half of the last three and a half years by claiming the Great Tribulation consisted solely of the wrath of men and that had been shortened to leave a little space for the wrath of God. Mid-Tribulation also has to deal with this problem and it does so by identifying the Great Tribulation with the wrath of God, both of which then occur in the last half of Daniel's 70th week and there's a footnote on that sentence. If you look at the footnote, I've made a point here. Um, One of the uh, proponents of the three-quarter position, um, Mr. Rosenthal, entitled his book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture, like this was something new. Well, I'm sorry, but all of you are Pre-Wrath Rapture. So by labeling the book Pre-Wrath Rapture, he doesn't say anything. He thinks he's saying something new, when in fact, Mid tribulationists are claiming they have a pre wrath rapture. Pre trib people say they have a pre wrath rapture. Even the post trib say, except they kind of compromise and, and say, well, we've got a protected wrath rapture, protected from wrath rapture. So the mid trib uh, the mid people are just as pre wrath as the three quarter people are. In fact, they kind of resent that title, being uh, so. Rosenthal took that title to himself. Okay, let's look at this now. Next paragraph. Central. Now watch this, because here's the core of the pre of the mid-trib position. Central to mid-tribulationism is linking the rapture of the church to a key event in God's judgments upon Israel. Now, they all try to do this, but you have to say, well, why do they put the rapture at the particular point they do? The key link, according to mid-tribulational proponents, centers upon the identity of the last trump so, if you'll open your Bibles and turn to two passages, 1 Corinthians 15:52. This uh, is a central passage on the end of the church, 1 Corinthians 15. It's this passage that deals with death. It's this passage you'll hear, you go to a Christian funeral. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 says, "This is says, this is the time of the rapture. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. See, there's the resurrection of the dead and the transformation of the living. And that is a rapture passage, verse 52. And included in that content, included in that information, is this reference to the last trumpet. Okay, let's move on now to 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which is the parallel and sister passage to 1 Corinthians 15. That's 1 Thess 4, verse 16. It's undeniable that these key rapture passages make reference to this trumpet. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain... See, it's a parallel teaching to 1 Corinthians 15, 52. Same kind of thing. And a trumpet is featured in this thing. Okay. Going back to uh, the, the paragraph on page 150, 134 for a moment. Since another rapture text mentions the trumpet of God, both of these passages are linked to the last of what? Remember the, th- the, the three kinds of judgments in the book of Revelation? There's the judgments, the sealed judgments. Then there's the trumpet judgments, and then there's the vile judgments, the bold judgments. Now, here's where people can jump to conclusions. Because they hear the word trumpet in the trumpet judgments of the book of Revelation, and they see in 1 Corinthians 15 the last trumpet, they make the deduction that the last trumpet of 1, Thess, of 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thess 4 must be what? last trumpet and you think of, you can see what they're doing here if you've got seven trumpets in the book of revelation that announce seven judgments of God and in first Corinthians you're talking about the last trumpet it's but a short step of logic to say well then the rapture must be at the seventh trumpet so what they do is they identify by means of this trumpet that becomes the the magnet or the pivot in this particular view of prophecy that this trumpet is the last trumpet and since it's the last trumpet it must be the last of the seven trumpet judgments so you have the seven trumpet judgments here six, seven okay Everybody understand where the mid-trib people are coming from here on this. Okay, continue, page 134. The first thing, you might, I I didn't break the notes up when I wrote this, but it'll help you if you'll take your pens or pencils, and where it says, where they link to the seven trumpets, you put a little one in the margin, because that's the essence of their position. I'm going to try to show you the pieces of the position here. Then I say, to make its case, however, mid-tribulationism has to make two further assertions. So where I have a one, you put a little two in the margin, okay? That no wrath of God occurs before the seventh trumpet judgment. And two, where I have two, you put a little three in your margin. That the seventh trumpet judgment occurs at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. Thus, mid tribulationism must prove three points to establish its position. It's got to prove an identity between the last trumpet of the rapture and the seventh trumpet of the series of seven judgments. Then, the second thing it's got to prove is that no wrath of God occurs until the seventh trumpet judgment. You've had seven seals here, now you get the seven trumpet judgments. No wrath of God until the seventh trumpet judgment. And you've got to prove that the seventh trumpet judgment occurs at this point. Now, you've been following us here. This, this causes another problem to happen. And the problem it causes is that you've got to take all the seals now and the trumpets and squash them in the first three and a half years. Remember over here, what happened? Over here, the three-quarter people were taking the seals and not finishing them until that sixth seal, you know, the seventh seal, the sixth seal was the wrath of God, is now going to be poured out. So they were moving all the judgments and clustering them toward this end of the seventh, 70th week. Whereas in mid-tribulationism, they're clustering all the judgments in the first part of the week to get them over with so they can get the seventh trumpet judgment in there at the midpoint now we're putting an awful load on the front end of the tribulation when you do this so continuing on page 135 we'll go through these points and I had you write those little numbers down because I'm going to track those numbers now and I'll show you where to put numbers in your margin okay the, the first full paragraph on page 135 if you put a little one prime and your margins, this is dealing with that problem. How do I identify the trumpets and all this? Well, what they do, here, this this develops, this is a development of 1.1. Mid-tribulationism bolsters this link by pointing to what is claimed are hints of the rapture in Revelation 10 and 11. Let's turn to Revelation 10. Okay, um, we're talking about an angel, uh, Revelation chapter 10, verse 15. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. And before I go any further, let me uh, draw your attention to that kind of thing, like this verse that we just read. You see the characteristic of life in the tribulation? See how it's different than life today? Every one of these passages, every one of these chapters that describes Daniel's 70th week is talking about not the gospel. The gospel, as it were, has faded away. There's a harshness. There's a judgmental nature here. You don't see believers the center of the action either. Who are the agencies doing the action throughout the tribulation? They're angels operating and carrying out these horrible judgments on the earth. It's a totally different kind of history. This is not normal history from our perspective. I mean, it isn't even the kind of history you'd encounter in the Old Testament. The book of Revelation's got some strange stuff going on here. This is an unusual period of history, this tribulational period. And it's the end of grace. You don't see much grace going on in the book of Revelation. You see judgment after judgment after judgment there's very little word about mercy and grace in the book of Revelation after you get through chapter 3 so we have this angel and he's part of this this regime to pour out uh, um, judgment and he swore by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven and the things in it the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it that there shall be delay no longer See that word? No longer will we delay. Now, what does that imply? It implies that grace... This is Revelation 10, verse 6. Um, The point is that something's drawing to a close here. There's been a delay, a delay, a delay, a delay. Remember when we studied studying the ascension of Christ and... uh, God the Father says to God the Son, sit thou at my right hand until, until I make your enemies, your footstool. There's a delay. Sit the right hand and you just wait. I'm going to turn your enemies so they'll kiss your feet before this thing is over. History is drawing to a close. And the book of Revelation gives you the close of this. So we have this closure And verse 7 says But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel When he's about to sound Then the mystery of God is finished As he preached to his servants the prophets Now they take that word mystery in verse 7 To say that that's referring to the church And if the mystery is finished The church is finished There's an identity going on here and they build a case that from there so on, that, that the, the um, rapture must be close by here, to this point. All right. In chapter 11, right after this, it's talking about John being given a measure, and you go measure the temple, and so forth, and so on. And then when you forget, work your way further through chapter 11 of Revelation... There's this great earthquake in verse 13. There's a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified, gave glory to the God of heaven. Notice again in verse 13 the theology that you see embedded in this verse. Do you see any grace here? Is there any talk about a gospel? Is there any talk about redemption? Not at all. The theme of Revelation has gone beyond the gospel. It's gone beyond grace to doxology. It's gone to the glory of God. It's doxological. God is vindicating his character. The gospel has been eclipsed at this point. The second woe was passed. The third woe was coming quickly. The seventh angel sounded. There arose loud voices in heaven. This is the one that Handel picked for his Messiah, by the way. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and he will reign forever and ever." Um, the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and they worship. "We give thee thanks, O Lord, God Almighty, who art who was, because you have taken thy great power and you've begun to reign." meaning he hasn't been reigning up until this point, in the sense of this world. Well, obviously in his sovereignty he's been in control, but now he takes force. And it says, The uh, nations were at wrath, and raged, and thy wrath came, and they came, time came for the dead to be judged, and time to give the reward to the bondservants, the prophets and the saints, to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, to those who destroy the earth, the temple of the earth, and so forth, and so forth, and so on. So, what we're saying here is that the mid-tribulational people pick on chapters 10 and 11 as the most likely location of... Uh, the rapture. Now, if you look on the notes on page 135, we've looked at the passages just briefly. Now, let's watch the logic, watch the thought process. Mid tribulation bolsters this link by pointing to what is claimed are hints of the rapture in chapters 10 and 11. Revelation 10, verse 7, speaks of a mystery of God that is about to be finished. This reference to mystery, mid-tribulation, defines with the word as it's used in 1 Timothy 3.16, where that word there does refer to the mystery of the Incarnation, and thus the completion of the Church. Revelation 3.11, 3-12, speaks of God's two witnesses who are killed, except that's not Revelation 11. Um, Yes, up above where we've skipped it. If you look at chapter 11, book of Revelation, the two, there's two prophets. And in verses 5 and 6, these guys have a certain amount of power. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war upon them and overcome them and kill them. By the way, that's another interesting point here. Um, if the church is protected from the wrath of God, and here are the two big spokesmen, and they're getting killed. It doesn't look quite like... The wrath of God is is being, they're being protected. But in any case, verse 7, they're killed. They become martyrs. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically calls Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Clearly the city of Jerusalem. And those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. In other words, the majority rules. And the majority, in this case, at this point in history, are unbelievers. So everybody rejoices that these two guys that are always going around the world talking about judgment, and God's mad at everybody. Thank God we got rid of those guys. And that's one of the things the Antichrist is able to do. He's able to overcome God's servants and crush them and destroy them. Now, in verse 11, here's a text that's important to, to the, the um, mid position. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them... They stood in their feet, and great fear fell on those who were beholding them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Now, there is a, a rapture, of sorts, of two witnesses. So, what mid-tribulational people do is say that they, there's a rapture right going on right there, right around that seventh trumpet. So, that must be where the rapture of the church is. Keep in mind, however, that there are many raptures in the Bible. There's the rapture of the church. What happened to Elijah? He was raptured. What happened to Enoch? He was raptured. So remember, the rapture thing, this, this mystery of whatever this thing is, where people suddenly go from this life into the, right into the heaven, that has happened several times before. So once again, even the word rapture isn't a technical term. You've got to look at context. All right, let's go back to the notes and we'll follow that paragraph and see what they do. Revelation 11, 3 through 12, speaks of God's two witnesses who are killed but then resurrected and called up into heaven in a cloud. Noting some similarities with rapture texts, mid-tribulation uses Revelation 10 and 11 to change this case. So there were the centuries of the case based on this passage. Now... Let's evaluate the three key assertions. Mid-tribulationism must make the case that no wrath of God occurs prior to the seventh trumpet judgment in Revelation 11. Unfortunately, what did we read about in Revelation 6? What was the wording used of the sixth seal judgment? The wrath of God has come. So there's a problem here. Once again, this wrath of God thing keeps tripping up these positions because now we've got the rapture being identified with the seventh trumpet judgment, but the seal judgments have already occurred and part of them clearly means the wrath of God. So if you've got the wrath of God expressed before the seventh seal. How do you protect the church against the wrath of God? See, we're back to the same question. So, in your paragraph, in your little margin notes, what we're arguing about in this paragraph is point two. Because back on page 134, we said, no wrath of God occurs before the seventh trumpet judgment. In this paragraph, we've shown that there is wrath of God occurring before the seventh trumpet judgment, because it's already said so in Revelation 6. Now, you might be able to get around that by making the trumpets parallel to the seals. And then you're... you're, Now you see what's happening. Now we're wrenching around the text of Revelation. Okay. Next paragraph. Next paragraph in the notes. Um, Well, let's finish this one. Mid-tribulationism must make the case that no wrath of God occurs prior to the seventh trumpet judgment in Revelation 11 18. Unfortunately, in Revelation 6, the wrath occurs clearly prior to the seventh trumpet. Moreover, Revelation seven fourteen, where the only occurrence of the term "great tribulation" occurs uh, in the in book, occurs before any of the trumpet judgments. Let's turn to Revelation seven. Now, this is before the tr- the trumpet judgments. Okay. Certainly before the seventh trumpet. If you're going to make the trumpets parallel to the seals, you've still got a problem because this isn't even the seventh seal yet. But in Revelation, chapter 7, verse 14, it says... uh, He's trying to ask the identity of this group of people, he sees. And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. That's the only place this term occurs in the whole book of Revelation, right here who come out of the Great Tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Well, if they've come out of the Great Tribulation and the Great Tribulation is over here in this scheme, then Revelation 7 must be occurring after the midpoint of the Tribulation. But if that happens, then the trumpet judgment's also moved over here. So, uh, what I'm trying to show you is you get problems with these schemes. They're not so obvious when you get dealing with details of the text. Okay, continuing in the notes. Mid-tribulation at this point is no more successful than three-quarter tribulation at postponing the wrath of God into the latter part of the seven-year period. The other mid-tribulation assertion, and this is going to be point number three... The other mid-tribulation assertion says that the seventh trumpet judgment occurs at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week. The problems with the position come from the fact that all seal and all trumpet judgments have to be completed then by the midpoint, when none of them are said to express the wrath of God. Moreover, the seventh trumpet judgment appears in Revelation 11 to be very close to the end of the 70th week, since the return is very close at hand. Remember what we said, that thing from Handel? The, our Lord, the kingdoms of the earth are ready to be reigned God is about to begin his reign that's going to be at the end so and this is topical a lot of the book of Revelation is topical it's not necessarily always sequential, chronologically sequential so, so we've got the problem that Revelation 11 appears to be close to the end of the 70th week only the vile judgments remain to happen Mid-tribulationism merely asserts without strong exegetical evidence that the seventh trumpet judgment occurs at the midpoint. And they're forcing that identity, not because of exegesis, but because of their identity of the last trump with that seventh trumpet judgment. Once they've made that, that key, now they've got to do all this to make everything else fit. Okay. Next paragraph, page 135. Again, for those of you who are new to the Bible and so on, I know this, you're wondering what is going on here. I'm lost with trumpets, bowls, and everything else. Well, again, keep your eye on the the big picture. We're talking about history coming to a controlled and deliberate end, and its end is going to solve a problem that everybody fusses at God about. Well, God, boy, if God was really God, he wouldn't let all this evil happen. God is going to end the evil. And you know what? When he goes to end the evil, now people are fussing at him because he's ending the evil. Before they were fussing at him because he didn't end the evil. Now he does it, and now, oh, I think that's horrible time. Gosh, look at all this judgment. (laughs) That's how he's ending evil. Isn't that what you asked for? See, that's the big picture of what's happening here. So keep that big picture in mind and just tolerate all these details for, for a little bit. Okay, last paragraph, page 135. The other crucial mid-tribulational assertion links the rapture's last trump with the seventh trumpet judgment. This assertion claims that the last trump, this is point one, this assertion claims that the last trump terminology implies there are previous trumpets in a coordinated or sequential chain. The trumpet judgments provide such a change. However, if the seventh trumpet judgment occurs here there's another trumpet judgment and that's found in matthew 24 31. so let's look at matthew 24 31. this is the lord jesus in the mount Olive's discourse Here, he's talking about his angels. At the end of the tribulation, gathering Israel, he will send forth his angels. Remember verse 31? We spent some time on it a few Thursday nights ago, and I said it comes out of the Old Testament. There's nothing mysterious about verse 31. It's referred to all the way back into Deuteronomy. He's talking about regathering of Israel. Church isn't even in the, in the view in, in Deuteronomy. He will gather and send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's the elect, the ones of Israel. That's a quotation out of the Old Testament. So you understand verse 31 by understanding the Old Testament context which has to do not with the church but with Israel. So he's going to gather his angels. Now people dive into this verse and they see, Ooh, a trumpet there. And, oh, he's gathering his elect. It sounds like the rapture. So they want to put the rapture there. The post-trib does that. That's how the post-trib gets the rapture all the way over at the end here. But the problem is the mid-trib is kind of stuck because he's got the last trump identified with the seven trumpet judgments, and the seven trumpet judgments aren't the last thing that happens in the tribulation. Now we've got another trumpet over here at the the end of the tribulation. So now the last trumpet identification collapses because that's the last trumpet, Matthew 24, 31. So if mid-tribulationism requires that the rapture occur at the last of a chain of trumpets, it has to identify the seventh trumpet with a trumpet in Matthew. Once this identification is made, mid-tribulationism becomes indistinguishable from post-tribulationism. So, mid-tribulationism basically dissolves itself and, and, and flows and morphs into a post-tribulational position. In fact, mid-tribulationism and three-quarter-tribulationism both slip toward post-tribulationism in their treatment of Matthew 24. By insisting that this major scriptural passage includes revelation of the rapture event, both views wind up trying various maneuvers to avoid concluding that Matthew 24, 31 occurs at the end of the 70th week. Mid-Tribulationism by ignoring the passage or by reinterpreting its chronological sequence, and three-quarter tribulation by splitting it away from Matthew 24 verse that should be 24 verse 31. Among the three views, therefore, it seems that post-tribulationism is the most stable. Because these other views, when you get right down and start dealing with details, you wind up getting forced over toward a post-tribulational position. Finally, the case for the rapture being implied symbolically by the two-witness event in Revelation 11 depends on allegorical hermeneutic. The two witnesses die in the literal city of Jerusalem. Their bodies lie for a literal number of days in Jerusalem's streets. The text seems to invite a straightforward literal interpretation. Nowhere in the text are there any hints of individuals besides the two witnesses. The only way the passage could imply a rapture of the entire church would be by allegorical interpretation, a move that flies in the face of the whole futurist school of thought. We have now discussed the Preterist scenario and the three Futurist scenarios, the three-quarter tribulation and mid-tribulation. Notice that each of the Futurist views is struggling to combine events having to do with the Church with events having to do with Israel's 70th week. And we've been over these. So the last paragraph on page 136, the last two views, futures views, the three quarter tribulationism and the mid tribulation, correctly distinguish the rapture from the return. So they're right there. They're precise there, making that distinction. But they continue, like post tribulation, to include the church inside the 70th week. Once the inclusion incurs, however, the church's immunity from the wrath of God arises as a crucial problem. Both of these views seek to redefine wrath so as to keep it from occurring during the first part of the 70th week when the church is present. In the light of Old Testament theology behind the 70th week, these attempted redefinitions of God's wrath fail. The Old Testament makes clear through its vocabulary of the pain of childbirth, vocabulary that Jesus adopted in Matthew 24 to describe both halves of the tribulation, that the entire 70th week is a period of God's wrath. Moreover, its purpose is directed to Israel to produce repentance toward the coming Messiah Jesus and to Gentile nations to divide them on the basis of their response to God's work in Israel, not to the church. Unnecessary exegetical complications arise from these two views, which leads us then to the last position that we're going to work with, and that is the pre-tribulation position. In the pre-tribulation position you have Daniel's 70th week. At the end, you have the return. But this one places the rapture before the tribulation. Now, if you look at figure 10, I put a gap on the left side of that diagram. And I deliberately put the gap in there because people sometimes think that pre-tribulationism has already decided that the rapture is what triggers off the tribulation that's going to happen with it, you know, the rapture occurs. Bing bong. I'm watching my watch now. Boom. The rapture happens. Now the next minute, tribulation starts. The antichrist is going to make his treaty. Not. I have never read a pre-tribulational author that said that in that detail. So the point is, it's left ambiguous. It's there's a there, there could be a cushion of time in here. We don't know. But the rapture happens. Sometimes, okay, may not. Remember, God is full of surprises in history. And we think we got everything aced and it doesn't work that way. God could inject a whole sequence of events in there. There can be a gap going on. All that's required, the weak version of pre-tribulation, weak, might, but I'm saying, is that it's not tight, it's, not, it's loose here. It says that the rapture occurs before the tribulation. It doesn't say how much earlier than the tribulation. It's all flexible. Don't know. Okay, again, let's on page 137, we'll start into it tonight. The fifth and final scenario of combining the destinies of Israel and the church places the rapture prior to Daniel's 70th week rather than trying to fit it inside the 70th week. In agreement with the three-quarter and mid-trib positions, pre-trib distinguishes the rapture and return as separate features. So in that, it agrees with the mid-trib position. It agrees with the three-quarter trip position. It doesn't agree with the post-trib, by the way. Remember what the post-trib does? He combines rapture and return. It adheres, to to the classic two-part division in the 70th week, agreeing with mid-tribulationism, but rejecting the tripartite division of three-quarter tribulationism. Figure 10 pictures the scenario. Advocates of this position believe that it best solves several challenges in the textual references to the Second Coming. First... It clearly solves the problem of keeping the church from the wrath of God in a way compatible with Revelation 3.10. So let's go back to Revelation 3.10 a moment. this were a class in exegesis and we'd be going verse by verse very carefully I would note that the first part of verse 10 may be combined with the last part of verse 9, that first clause uh, because you have kept the word of thy perseverance um, there are Greek editors that argue that that actually finishes verse 9 it's not even in verse 10 now, that's a technical question, we we'll won't get into that I will keep you from the hour of testing, the hour which has come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now notice what it says. In verse 10, it's not saying that I am keeping you from the testing as though I were shielding you through the testing, like a submarine going through the water, or like the Jews going through the judgment on Egypt, unscathed. Rather, what verse 10 is doing is saying, I'm keeping you from the time, from the time of the testing that is coming upon the earth. Now, how is the church going to be kept from the time of testing unless the church is excluded from the time of testing, which means it's raptured prior to the time of testing? So one of the accomplishments of the pre-trib position is that it gets the church out of the way of the wrath of God. So that's the first thing. Secondly, again referring to our notes on page 137, it maintains the entire 70th week as a time of judgment focused upon Israel and the nations as this judgmental period is presented in the Old Testament. So it doesn't try to, by keeping the church out of it, it takes a very Old Testament view of that tribulation period. Next, it allows enough time for the Bema Seed Judgment and the marriage supper of the Lamb to occur prior to the church returning with Christ at the end of the 70th week. And it permits a literal interp- interpretation of the millennial kingdom starting people in natural bodies. Because if the church is raptured at this point, the church goes to be with the Lord, then you have everyone at this point in history now is an unbeliever. So the population here is 100% unbelievers. Now the judgments start falling. The truth of the gospel hasn't disappeared. Bible texts are still left around. Information is still available. There are prophets who obviously are going to speak about how you get saved before a holy, righteous God by substitutionary blood atonement, like the prophets have said all the way back to Abel and Cain. So, as time marches on, believers occur. People come to know the Lord. Apparently, they're not baptized with the Holy Spirit and joined in union with Jesus Christ. And people find that odd. How can you have a believer? not? same way you had believers before Pentecost. All the disciples, they weren't baptized in the union with Christ until after Pentecost. We're not talking salvation here. We're talking positional truth after salvation. And these saints have a particular positional truth. They're saved, saved the same way you and me, uh, way, way we are saved. But... The population—I don't know—maybe 90% unbelievers. And then we have this this period in here when the Antichrist comes into power, and you have the persecutions begin, and you have uh, because he knows Satan at this point knows his time is limited, so we have the rise of the Antichrist, and now we begin to have tremendous martyrdoms happening. We might have some persecutions going on over here too, by the way. So these believers are under siege. In fact, they're under such siege that that's where the phrase came from in Matthew 24. That if these, t- if, if Jesus said, if this period were any longer than seven years, there wouldn't be an un- there wouldn't be a believer left. The pressure is so great, just psychological pressure, spiritual pressure, physical pressure. Never in the history since Adam and Eve has there ever going to be a period of history like this you talk about pressure and stress this is it the human race will see what God's righteous wrath looks like in practice and so this period goes on here and These people who are survivors, many of them aren't survivors, you find those people that are in the book of Revelation, Revelation, was it 6 or 7, somewhere in there, and then you have the group in 11, there's several groups in the book of Revelation that are martyred. They cry out, Lord, Lord, how long are you going to hold off? This is awful. When are you going to revenge the blood of our brethren who have been defiled by this Antichrist? And this whole sinful world system. And basically God says, hold on. It's coming. And you've got to hold on for a little bit longer. And then I'm going to do it. And he does down at the end. But when he does down the end, maybe there's 90% unbelievers still because some people have believed, some people have been killed. And so we have, say, 10% of believers at this point out of the population of the world. It is those 10% in natural bodies, because they haven't been raptured, natural bodies, who then become the nucleus to repopulate the earth after all unbelievers. The 90% of the population, they basically go to hell. And so God gets rid of all these people and leaves the 10% as the nucleus of the coming kingdom on earth. Yeah, Jews and Gentiles. The issue is whether they're saved. The the Gentiles, the ones that uh, responded, they saw God's work with the Jews. It's interesting, the basis of judgment there doesn't appear to be quite like the gospel. It appears more to be like the gospel in their day. I mean, the gospel truth is involved, of course. They were saved the same way. But the judgment is linked to how they are viewing what's happening here during the tribulation. They're the ones that go visit in jail they risk their lives to go help the persecuted say why would they do that this is a social siege here i mean you'd risk your identification and your right to buy and sell and everything else by being a rebel against the system every one of these believers here you can view them as an underground movement you know like world war ii When the Nazis occupied Europe, there were the underground, the French did have a few people in France that knew how to fight, and the French underground people, and the German underground people, and Italian underground. There was German underground people. I mean, there were some people in the German army that wanted to assassinate Hitler and tried very hard to do so. Didn't get any cooperation, by the way, from us, but they actually proposed it. In fact, there was a Lutheran minister, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, who, who said it was the righteous thing to do, to murder. And the Lutherans went all like this when Bonhoeffer said that. he says, we murder in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's a famous book that he said this. And Christians still vibrate over this, this Lutheran pastor saying this sort of thing. He said, we are called to murder the Nazis. So this was the rise of this underground. Well, this is the underground movement during the Tribulation. These people sneak around. They they they're probably uh, offer bribes. Bribery is authorized in Proverbs 20, so wherever it is. Just don't take a bribe, but you can offer one. And so the all this goes on during the tribulation. And as a result of that, they are the ones who are chosen to begin God's kingdom on earth. And there's no rapture or anything else. Now, there may be a rapture of Old Testament saints here, or it may be part of the rapture of the church, whatever, but the point, and that's argued, you know, I have my position, but there are others who don't. But the point is that, it, that there are people in natural bodies. You've got to have people in natural bodies who are believers at the beginning of this, or you do not have a millennial kingdom. So if you're premillennial, you've got to have that. And that's the other problem with the futurist positions. What do we say that they tend to coalesce toward? Post-tribulationism. All the other positions. Now, if you really coalesce to post-tribulationism, what's going to happen to the millennial kingdom? It goes ah mill So now, let me draw something for you to watch, to observe in this. There are basically two stable positions in all the views you've heard so far. All the views tend to do one of two things. They either tend to drift to a pre-trib, pre-mill position, or they tend to drift to a post-trib, ah-mill position, because those are the two stable points. All the other positions are basically halfway houses that are kind of wobbly, because the logic forces you in one direction, or it forces you in the other direction. Okay, one other thing, and well, we won't even raise that because time, time's up tonight. Um, hold on to your questions. Uh, we'll meet two Thursday nights from now, and we'll continue. I'll have another handout, and we'll finish the pre-trib position. Much to the relief of so many people who are snowed by all the details, and that's okay. Uh, We'll try to pull it together. It makes meaningful sense when it's all over here. I'm struggling through this rapidly. As I said, this is not a class in eschatology. We got into this simply because we had to deal with the last event of history. So I decided I'd spend some time in some of these details. But as you can see, it's not easy. And these details, you could spend a lot more time than I'm spending on them. But that's not the scope of this particular class. Father, we thank you for our time together We thank you that, as we look out upon history, we know history has a purpose. And it's very important that we understand history has a purpose, because if it doesn't, our lives have no purpose. So, the meaningfulness of our lives is linked very intimately with the meaningfulness of history itself. We thank you, Father, that through the Book, through the Word of God, through the Bible, we know where history is going, and no one else does. There's no speculation, there's no school of thought, there's no great thinker down through history who has ever successfully figured out where history is going. Only you can tell us because it's your plan. History is his story, the story of how the Lord Jesus Christ will, will eventually carry out that dominion mandate you gave the human race originally in the garden, that he will subdue all things to himself. And we look forward to that grand kingdom, We thank you that you can keep our spirits up by visualizing what a real righteous world will look like. It will happen someday. And that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you now through our Savior's name. Amen.